All right, good morning. Great to be here with you on this Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate sometimes in our lives we have expectations of certain things and they don't meet up to reality. Doesn't that happen sometimes? Yes? Okay, I see a few people shaking their heads, so thank you for that. Uh, yeah, sometimes we have expectations, and it just doesn't match up to reality. For example, let's say you're desiring to have kids, and your expectation is maybe a picture like this. You're like, oh, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to be great. I have two kids, I've never had this experience in my life. And actually, the reality is more like this next picture, where the kid is standing on the parent's head, right? Where... You know, when my youngest daughter, Riley, when she was about one, anytime she thought I was asleep, she would come and slap me in my face so hard to wake me up, or she would grab my eyelid and try to open it because, <laughs> you know, she wants to play or whatnot. Or let's just say you have an expectation because your friend's like, oh, I'm going to bake you this cake for your birthday because I saw it on Pinterest and it looks like this. Uh, if you have me bake the cake, it's going to look something like this, right, where the expectation doesn't meet the reality. Or let's say you're going to have a birthday party, and so you buy a pool, and you see this advertisement, you're like, oh, I'm going to buy a pool so that they can have a great you know, birthday party and the whole neighborhood can come and play. You blow it up, and it looks something like this, where it's one kid <laughs> fits in. Look, sometimes uh, we have certain expectations, and it just doesn't match up to the reality of it. There's a disconnect. And we see that here because if you look at verse 12, a large crowd has gathered because of the feast in Jerusalem. Because it's the Passover feast. So there's millions of Jews now. And there's a large crowd that has gathered following Jesus because they have a certain expectation of him, which is not the reality. There's a disconnect between what they expect Jesus to be and who he really is and what he's going to actually do. Because they expect Jesus to come in like a military conqueror, like a king, and roll in and destroy the Roman Empire and free Israel once and for all. Now, how do we know this? There are three things in this passage that's going to key us into this. So we're going to quickly turn there. The first thing, I want you to look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. This is the first clue of their expectation. Now, palm trees were like the nationalistic symbol of Israel. It's kind of like for us, if we knew the president was coming into our town, we'd get a bunch of little American flags and we'd wave it, right? Same similar thing here. And so to have palm trees and then to lay them down is like an impromptu red carpet for the king of Israel that was going to come in to destroy Rome. It was a sign of victory. The second thing you see, second clue, they proclaim Hosanna. We've sang this at church, if you grew up in church, Hosanna, but sometimes I, I have like, what does that mean? All right, it sounds like a funny word, Hosanna. Well, if you translate it, what it means is save now. That's literally what it means. But you see, the people, when they were proclaiming this, they weren't tuned into the spiritual salvation they needed. What they were saying is, save us from the Romans now. So it's literally saying, bring a revolution now, Jesus. And then the third clue is the next thing they say. They say, if you look here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Uh, Any of you guys reading a physical Bible? Okay. If you look, sometimes they'll cue in with a side footnote, right? And if you look at that, it's going to cue you in or move you into what? Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. This is straight from that passage. Do you see that? You're like, I don't have a real Bible. I only read the phone Bible, right? That's okay. I'm not judging you. I do that all the time. But if you do, if you take a look, it'll cue you back 
to Psalm 118. Now, why is that a clue for us? Because this psalm is the last psalm in the halal, and it's actually called the conqueror's psalm. Because they expect the Messiah to roll in like a military conqueror, and because of that, we praise the name. Not only that, but it doesn't help that in the previous chapter in John 11, Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. So you can imagine the expectation. Do you see it? Can you feel it? They just saw him. I mean, even death can't contain him. So the the crowd is gathering because they're like, oh my gosh, this guy's the guy. He's going to come. And he's going to come like the Messiah that we expect because their expectation of a king of Israel is David, Saul, Samuel, who defeated armies and Goliaths. So that's their expectation. You guys with me? That's their expectation. But there's a disconnect between the reality. The reason why, and this is the key lesson here, Jesus does not come to fulfill the expectations of mankind. He comes comes to fill the will of the Father. Did you get that? That's the key lesson here. Jesus comes and he understands their expectation, but he comes because he has a greater purpose, which is to fulfill the will of the Father. And for us, that's our calling as well, right? Not to be swayed by the desires of man, but to follow the will of the Father. And so with that in mind, I want us to have just two takeaways. Because we see Jesus fulfilling the will of the Father, and because of that, there's going to be two things that we draw out of this text that we can apply into our lives. All right, you with me? Yes? All right. Can you tell your neighbor? Yes. All right. Thank you. Just want to make sure you're awake on this wonderful morning. So the first lesson is this. Jesus comes as a humble king. To fulfill the will of the Father, he comes as the humble king, and now we are called to emulate his humility. Amen? He comes as the humble king. Now, if you look here, go back to verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, and this is from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. So he's fulfilling a prophecy. But this is shocking to the large crowd that has gathered. Because their expectation of a king coming in is a picture like this. This is kind of like a painting. This is what they kind of envision a king. But he comes not like in garb and military people in this white horse, but he comes what? On a donkey. It's like if you heard the president was coming into your town and he comes driving in in a tewu. You're like, what? That is not what I was expecting. By the way, I had a tewu when I was in college. It's the worst car ever made. And so I'm Korean, so I could kind of make fun of it. Okay? Uh, it's the worst car. It had a, on the radio, it had a karaoke function and it broke. And so everything I listened to on my radio was like reverb times 10. So sports radio was like, rawr, rawr, rawr. you can't even understand it. Not only that, I was driving it once. I have so many stories, but uh, I, it was at UCLA. It was like a busy intersection. And so you got to turn quick. Anytime there's a little space, I mean, they'll honk at you. So I'm, I'm waiting at the, and this is Santa Monica Boulevard and the car's coming in. Then I see a little space. So I turn. I guess I turn too fast. So the airbag literally <laughs> fell out into my lap. <laughs> so I was so shocked. I pulled over. I put the airbag back in. And I thought to myself, first of all, it didn't even go off, okay? 
what is this thing, right? Anyways, uh, that, uh, that's enough stories about my tebu. It's a tebu laganza, by the way. It's like if the president <laughs> drove in on a tebu, you'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. So the expectation is getting killed here. The energy's coming down because they're like, what the? But you see, the interesting thing here is that if they were a good Jew, they would have known that this is a prophecy in Zechariah 9. But check this out, and this happens. Their expectation of what they wanted their king to be like blinded them from the truth of Scripture. And that happens in our lives as well, doesn't it? They knew that the Messiah was going to come on a donkey, but they didn't want that. They wanted their king to look differently. Uh, You know, in the Toronto Star, there was an article written recently called, What a Trend We Have in Jesus. And it was a kind of a, you know, they're making fun of Christians that we just change Jesus to whatever we want him to be. And we just, oh, we don't like the fact that he, he created hell. So we don't want to, we don't see Jesus as a person that believes in hell. And we have all these different things, so we just change him. And we see here that the people here, they were blinded to the fact because they didn't want to see Jesus, the king emperor to come that's going to kill Rome as a person coming in in a donkey. But this was prophesied, and not only that, but we see that he comes in humility here. He comes as the humble king riding in a donkey. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8, you guys know this. Who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see a double humility here. Because the first thing you see is that he comes, even though he's God, he becomes human. And not only that, but he humbles himself beyond that to be able to die the death, the worst death that humanity can die. So it's not even that he becomes a slave on our behalf, but he dies the worst death a slave can die. That is the sort of humble king that we love and serve. Amen? And we are called because in the previous verses in Philippians 2, the calling is for us to emulate this, right? In verses 3 through 5, it says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be humble. John Calvin, looking at this verse, says, Since then the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. Isn't that true? So we are to emulate this humility. The problem is, is that we don't see sometimes pride as a big issue. I want to draw this out a little bit. Let's just say Sergio, and this is not something he's going to struggle with, but I'm just saying, let's, let's say he comes up to me. We haven't had this conversation, so don't judge him. He comes up and he says, Pastor John, I'm really struggling with lust. I mean, it's so bad I'm, I'm checking you out right now. I mean, it's like it's getting really weird. How would I feel about that? I would be like disgusted. I'd be like, oh, right? And I would be like, let's talk. Let's have coffee this week because I really want to talk to you because let's address this. And not only that, if it's not addressed, it could even get to the point where he gets fired, right? Because that's how serious it is. But let's say he comes up and says, Pastor John, I've been really struggling with pride. What's my response? 
Oh, everyone struggles with it. Yeah, pray about it. Okay, thank you. And then we move on. And it's interesting, we don't deal with pride when we, I want you to understand that it, it, it really is a snare for us. And we all struggle with it, so we need to deal with it. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So the challenge here is even though we are Christians, if you get into a place where you're prideful, you will not look at God more, you will just look at yourself. And so that's the challenge. Um, in verse 5 of Philippians, how do we deal with, uh, with pride and become more humble? Well, the clue is actually in verse 5, because in verse 5 of Philippians 2, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? Did you get that? So humility is a reaction, not an action. Okay? Let me explain what that means. You can try with all of your will to be humble. Without Jesus, it is impossible. Did you get that? Have you ever tried that? I'm going to be humble today. Doesn't work. Doesn't. It is a natural reaction process that happens when you go closer to Christ. That's why it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's where it's found. And so as we address this, I want you to know that you need to draw closer to Christ and let him do a work in your heart and in your mind as we pursue humility to emulate our king. The second lesson, and this is awesome. Jesus came to provide what was most needed, not most wanted. Okay? So Jesus comes to provide not physical salvation or the things of this world, but he comes to provide spiritual salvation and what we need most. Okay? Because in verse 16, 17, 18, 19, there's going to be three groups of people mentioned. It's going to be the disciples, the crowd, and the Pharisees. They all have their own agenda of things that they think that they need or want most right now. Jesus doesn't come to provide that. He comes to provide more and better. Okay, so we're going to see that. Turn to verse 16. It says this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So his disciples, what they want is power. They want Jesus to go in and I want to be on your right and your left and we're going to take over. And they can't understand that even though Jesus told them multiple times, I'm going to go die at Jerusalem. They can't see it because they have their own agenda. With this large crowd, I want you to look in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Sounds like they're doing good stuff. They're talking about Jesus. But verse 18 is going to cue us in on their motivation. It says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So they are sign followers. This is what John MacArthur calls this crowd, thrill seekers. They're the false followers because this is the same crowd that a week later are going to declare crucify him. Does that make sense? They are the crowd that has gathered because it's just a commotion that Jesus is, 
is kind of creating. It's kind of like, have you ever been to Third Street Promenade, anyone? You know, they have street performance. You ignore the ones that have no crowd. Isn't that true? And as soon as there's kind of a large crowd, what do you do? Oh, oh what's going on over there? And you naturally can't help this curiosity, and then you go towards the crowd. And this is kind of that group. And you see large crowds gathering when Jesus is profitable and popular. But as soon as he's not, we leave Jesus. It's kind of like when he fed the 5,000. There was a large crowd that gathered. Why? And I heard they have free bread. Did you, did you hear about this guy? It's crazy. And so the crowd gathers. So as soon as their profitability and popularity of Christ declines, they're gone. The third one, the Pharisees in verse 19 said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after them. The idea here is they are fearful of Jesus that they're going to lose their positions of power. Okay. How do we know this? In John eleven forty seven, accuse us in. It says this. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, talking about Jesus, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they were fearful of Jesus because he's going to create such a commotion that Rome is going to come and take away the power and the wealth that they have. So all three groups, I want you to get this. They have an agenda, and it's all earthly. And they think that's what they need and want most. Whether it's power, popularity, okay, profitability, or position. And Jesus is like, man, I come to give you way more than that kind of stuff. You know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ephesians 3.20. If, you, if you're taking notes, please write this down. This is such a wonderful, it says this, not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. See, sometimes we think that's what we need, and Christ is like, no, I know better. I come to provide in this context, not physical things, I come to provide spiritual salvation. Your enmity with the Father, I come to resolve that so you can have eternal life, and you can have peace with God. You can have life everlasting. You can have forgiveness of sins. That's what I come to provide. And it's greater than any money or possession in this world. Amen? And that's what Jesus is doing here. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we get caught up in the things of this world. And we define a good day or a bad day based on whether if we can get this thing, it's a good day. And the Bible tells us, you have Christ, it's a good day. You know, it could get as simple as, I want this job. And you don't get the job, it's a bad day. No. You got Christ, it's a good day. You're trying to have kids, it's difficult, it's almost impossible. With Christ, it's a good day. Amen? That's what we need to get because this group could not get it. I want to draw this out a little bit more. Um, you know, this is Jim Carrey. I don't think he's a Christian or anything, but this is what he said. He was quoted as saying, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so they see it wasn't the answer to anything. 
And it's very interesting because when you kind of study these uh, kind of celebrities who have rich, uh, kind of are very famous, very rich, and they kind of make it, they all kind of start seeking spiritual things, don't they? Why? Because they realize the answer isn't that. Uh, you guys know Shayla Booth? Very, he had a meltdown in his life. He says he's a Christian now, I don't know. But this is what he said in one of his interviews. He says, most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from. But it's a God-sized hole. Yes, it is. He didn't mean that as a kind of like a Christian thing. If I knew how to fill it, I'd be on my way. we got to be careful, because I think sometimes we want or we think what we need is the things of this world. And Jesus comes and he says, no, I come to provide so much more that in me you have everything. You have life. John Calvin says, however many blessings we expect from God, his infinite liberality will always exceed all our wishes and our thoughts. We have a God that obviously takes care of us, provides and answers to our physical needs. And I want you to think that's a bad thing. But it can't just end there. You need to know that what God comes to do, what Jesus comes to do, and what we remember this Passion Week is that he comes to save us and provide a life that we could not get to the Father without him.